A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Saul, still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he should find any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. On his journey, as he was nearing Damascus, a light from the sky suddenly flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, sir? The reply came, I am Jesus, who you are, you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, for they had heard the voice, but could see no one. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So he led them so they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was unable to see, and he neither ate nor drank. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and ask at the house of Judas, for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is there praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him, that he may regain his sight. But Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many sources about this man, what evil things he has done to your holy ones in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to imprison all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel, and I will show him what he will have to suffer for my name. So Ananias went and entered the house, laying his hands on him and said, Saul, my brother, the Lord has sent me. Jesus, who appeared to you on the way by which you came, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, things like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized, and when he had eaten, he recovered his strength. He stayed some days with the disciples in Damascus, and he began at once to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. The word of the Lord. Thank you. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, Lord. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, 
so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. These things he said while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. On behalf of Bishop Mark Rivetsuso, our auxiliary bishop, my brother priest and deacons who are gathered here, our men and women religious, our seminarians, it is indeed a joy to welcome you to this Legatus prayer breakfast. We come together today, of course, beginning in the greatest prayer that we have, when Jesus feeds us with the words of scripture and with his own body and blood, and the words that we hear in the sacred scriptures today speak to us of the life that God gives to us. There's some subtleties in that first reading on Paul's conversion that really should strike us, should make us think about faith. What does Paul ask? What does he desire? What does he want to do? Paul wants to bring back those who follow the Lord Jesus in chains. He wants to imprison them. And he's very proud of the way that he persecutes those who follow Jesus. That's Paul's plan. But yet, we know something happened on that road to Damascus. There was a great vision. Paul's heart was totally changed. Paul was totally converted. And so far from wanting to bring Christians back in chains, Paul desires for the presence of the living God, whom he has witnessed in Jesus Christ. Christians, naturally, are still fearful of Paul, for they feel that he is coming to persecute them. We see how this all changes in that reading from the Acts of the Apostle. Paul is then welcomed. And when Paul realizes what he has experienced, that the risen Christ asked him, why are you persecuting me? Paul has to reflect. He's persecuting the living God. Totally changed, totally transformed. Jesus' words to Paul, why are you persecuting me? means that Paul is persecuting the body of Christ. And Paul realizes this in that whole conversion experience. Paul is totally changed. Baptized into the faith, we know that the one who was the greatest persecutor of Christians had become its greatest 
preacher. God revealed that he had a purpose for Paul. That Paul would no longer be feared, but rather would be welcomed in Christian communities. And not only that, but we know that Paul's life after that conversion was not an easy life. As a matter of fact, it became far more complicated as Paul faced himself persecution and rejection as he faced arduous journeys to bring the word of Jesus to others. We know that Paul's life, far from becoming easier after his encounter with the risen Christ, really became very difficult. But Paul, as we well know in his letters, was able to speak of being persecuted. And he spoke of that persecution that he faced with great joy because he was doing it for the sake of Christ. And so each one of us who gather here are called to be witnesses to that same conversion, that same gospel that spoke to the heart of Paul that changed his life completely. We are called to be those witnesses for life in the world. No matter what our vocation, no matter what stage, no matter what age we are in life, we are called to speak out for that great gift that God has bestowed upon us. What does Jesus speak of in the gospel that touches our hearts. He speaks of himself as the living bread. And those who partake of him will have life. The very words of the gospel always speak of life. And that is who we are as Christians. Why do you persecute me? Jesus asked Paul. We are the ones who are called to speak on behalf of life because we are the ones who are witnesses to the life that God has given to us and the gospel that he has entrusted to us. And so as we gather this day, we reflect on the call that God gives to each one of us. Just as Paul had to reflect on the call that God gave to him. We who are nourished by these words of sacred scripture, we who are nourished by the body and blood of Christ, by that life-giving bread, we reflect too on how we receive these words and receive the body and blood of Christ? And how do we, like Paul, bring that living gospel to others? It is through our witness. It is through our response to the call and the love that God gives to us that we too are called to bring that love of Christ to the world, spreading that gospel of life 
by the witness of our lives and responding to that wonderful gift that God gives to us, the gift of life, the gift of faith, and the gift of knowing that that bread of eternal life leads us to the joys of heaven. Okay, so June 24, 2022, just a little over 10 months ago, was a day that many in this room have spent decades working and praying for. It's the day the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, ending almost 50 years of federal protection for abortion. These Everyone in this room knows that these five decades have witnessed the abortion industry take the lives of over 64 million innocent children. And while the court's decision was momentous for our efforts, we know that the abortion fight has splintered from a national issue to many state-level battles. We now see that clinic-based abortions have essentially been eliminated in Missouri, and for that we are very grateful. But the industry responded, and they repositioned themselves, and they are turning southern Illinois into an abortion destination, as the, most of you know. Um, and the fight over mail-order chemical-based abortion continues to rage. And so while we celebrate the Supreme Court's decision, we all realize that the fight continues on um, and we continue our battle. As people of faith, we know that we're part of an eternal fight of good versus evil, and Mother Church is also with us in that battle, in the confessional, at the Eucharistic table, with the rosary, and by the selfless service of her priests, nuns, and all the faithful. In this struggle, we in St. Louis are blessed to have a great leader, our own good shepherd and our own bishop, who represents Christ to us and is a visible sign of the unity of our church in St. Louis. It's my pleasure to introduce to you our friend and our Archbishop, Mitchell T. Rosansky. to be with you here this morning and to see that at the early hour we're ready to rise and to speak for life and not only at the early hour but each and every hour of the day so I thank you for your commitment to life for your being here this morning but also for all that you do on behalf of life uh, in whatever vocation you have responded to and responding so wonderfully to the Lord's call. I'm pleased to introduce this morning's keynote speaker, Peggy Forrest, who is president and CEO of Our Ladies in Maternity Homes. Peggy served on the board of directors of St. Louis Continuum of Care and the Maternity Housing Coalition, a national coalition of maternity homes under the auspices of Heartbeat International. She is active in the Missouri Alliance for Life and has offered testimony before state legislative committees on pro-life legislation 
and on issues alerting families served by pregnancy help organizations. In 2017, Peggy played a lead role in the pro-life response to the City of St. Louis Abortion Sanctuary City ordinances that were passed that year. As Our Ladies in, joined by the Archdiocese of St. Louis Catholic Elementary Schools and O'Brien Enterprises, filed a federal lawsuit. This coalition succeeded in their effort to expose the ordinances as unconstitutional, and those ordinances were overturned. Peggy received the Order of St. Louis the King Award from Archbishop Carlson in recognition of her service to the church on behalf of life. She holds the position of Dame of the Grand Cross in the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre. She is an active member of the Order of Malta and has served on the boards of Fontbonne University, the Today and Tomorrow Education Foundation, Kennedy Catholic High School, the Archdiocese of St. Louis Annual Catholic Appeal, and the Archdiocesan Finance Council. All that talent in one person. We are so pleased that she could be with us here this morning. So it is my joy, my pleasure to welcome and to introduce our own Peggy Forrest. Peggy, thank you. Thank you, Archbishop Brzezanski, for your kind invitation to be here um, this morning to address this special group of business leaders, dedicated Catholics, and pro-lifers. It's always great when we can get together and encourage each other and feel uplifted. It's especially meaningful for me to be here at this Legatus-sponsored event as my parents were charter members of Legatus. And my father served a term as president in the early years. So it's kind of a full circle moment for me. I want to particularly thank the Legatus members for the work that you do to live out the gospel of life in your families, in our community, but more importantly, in your businesses. That's an unusual thing for people to do is to live out their faith in their business. And I must begin with a confession. I've attended the Gospel of Life prayer breakfast since 2010. And although I'm not an early morning person, I didn't really care about catching the worms with the birds. I came each year. I was enriched by my participation, and that always gave me the impetus to come the next year when my alarm went off at 4.30 in the morning. But for a number of reasons last year, it was particularly difficult for me to be here. But I came anyway. But I made a decision that I would not come this year. <laughs> um, and I think God must have gotten a great chuckle out of that <laughs> because it was less than three weeks later when I received the invitation from the Archbishop to speak today. 
So if anybody here is thinking they're not coming next year, <laughs> I'm just here to say. I grew up in a small town just west of Boston, known for the starting line of the Boston Marathon. And I was the eldest of eight children. And I, in, that, in that role, I was witness to the immense joy with which each child born into our family was received. Baptismal day for each of my siblings, and I remember most of them, was an extremely special day. There was never a doubt in my mind that every life was cherished and acknowledged to be a gift from God. And how fortunate I was, we were, to be raised with that experience, knowing God's love through the gift of life. How unfortunate it is that fewer and fewer children today have that experience. In one small house, my mother cared for all of us. Her aging father and her uncle with dementia. My father went to college on the GI Bill, and when he graduated, he had four children. And I shared these particular anecdotes because what I knew as circumstances of normal family life are today regularly used as excuses and justifications for abortion and euthanasia. Financial pressure, having a large family already, infirmity, illness. I don't believe that those of us who lived in a pre-Roe world could have ever imagined those things would have been used to justify the killing of the unborn and the aged and the infirmed. But unfortunately, this is the world that we live in now. The culture of life, as we have come to refer to the manner in which we all live, embrace the sacredness of life of God's creation, and promising love and promoting love and charity, virtue and fidelity, words that many in our society don't even know the meaning of anymore. That culture of life is all-encompassing. It encompasses each life in every circumstance, from the moment of creation until the last natural breath on earth. Those of us, everybody in the room, who are nurturing the culture of life understand that God is the sole authority over life and over death. And as God's creation and made in his image, every human being has worth for that very reason. There are no other qualifiers necessary for a life to have worth. Yet society today has attempted to impose all manner of qualifiers on a human person's worthiness, on their worthiness to live, their worthiness to be appreciated, their worthiness to be respected.
And all the while, they're stealing from God his authority over life and death. I cannot help but dream of a world in which every being understood what we all know, that they are made in his image, and they are offered salvation through his son's sacrifice. In that world, abortion would be unthinkable. Euthanasia would be unthinkable. Slavery and genocide would not exist. Women and children would not be abused. Kids would not be killing kids. Students would be safe in schools, worshipers safe in their churches, and neighbors safe in their community. No one would be marginalized for who they are, what their origins are, their physical characteristics, or their mental abilities. All the social evils inflicted upon us today have their roots in the utter disrespect for life and the denial of God's authority over it. And that's just as Satan would have it. Wanting to live in a God-centered world, the one that he created for us, we follow Jesus, his son. We work, we sacrifice, and we pray. And we share the truth of God's love for us. We here today understand our responsibility to care for and protect human life, especially the lives of the most vulnerable. We labor for the right to life for the unborn and the right for every human being to live a life of dignity. This is our calling. This is our sacred mission. And even as we're each called to share this mission, we're called to work in different capacities, using the special and unique talents and gifts that God has provided for us. Some educate and enlighten through their preaching, their classroom teaching, their writing, their testimony, film. Others focus on influencing legislation, and still others defend the right to life in the court of law. Some work with pregnancy help organizations, as I do. Others work to bring dignity to the marginalized and the sick. Countless pro-lifers work in the medical field, and some, those precious some, devote their lives solely to prayer. Everyone has a vital role to play, and when we work together, we affect change. We affect change locally, nationally, and internationally. Together, we can change a mother's life. Together, we make it possible for a child to be born. Together, we change hearts and minds. Twelve years ago, I began my tenure at Our Ladies Inn. It was a lifelong journey to get there. I wasn't sure if I was up to the task, but I think we all probably feel that 
from time to time. I wasn't afraid of what would be asked of me that was listed in the job description, but I was afraid of the spiritual warfare that I expected to be laid at my feet. I was concerned about my emotional capacity to work with women in such tragic situations. But I don't feel like I really had a choice in accepting that position. I have never felt more called to do something in my life than I did the morning that I sat in what we call the parlor room at Our Ladies Inn in the city. I knew the moment I sat down that I was called to be there. When I left, I kept telling myself, I don't think I really want this. I hope they don't offer this to me. On the way home, I got a phone call. And they offered the position to me. And without blinking an eye, I said yes, even though I was prepared to say, oh, let me think about it. God called me as he has called each of you to a unique role in spreading the gospel of life. And I can't tell you how blessed I have been to have worked with the women, the men, the volunteers who work at Our Ladies Inn, the men and women who work to make sure that our laws protect the unborn, to work with the sidewalk counselors and the prayer warriors and everybody in between. We can't do it alone. Nobody can do this alone. We have, we have the Lord as our guide, but he calls us to do this in community. The day before I started at Our Ladies Inn, I was outside of Planned Parenthood in St. Louis with a 40 Days for Life group from my parish. I witnessed a young woman being counseled by a sidewalk counselor. They were quietly engaged in discussion. And before my time was up, I saw the two of them walk across the street to a mobile ultrasound unit van. We all prayed that that young woman would make the right decision, decide for life. The very next day, my first day at Our Ladies Inn, I was shocked to see this young woman again. She was coming to stay with us. Her circumstances, I learned, were very challenging. She had just turned 18. She was raised by her grandmother when she was removed from her parents' custody. And where her grandmother lived did not allow for a third person to be in that unit. So she had no place to go. She thought her only option was abortion. She was ecstatic to learn that she actually did have an alternative. She remained with us throughout her pregnancy and gave birth to a sweet baby girl. She considered adoption, but ultimately chose to parent. She availed herself of every parenting class and every parenting resource that we could put in front of her. She began college coursework and planned for their future together as a family. Her daughter, 
now 11, is alive today because of the prayers of the 40 Days for Life warriors, that sidewalk counselor, the mobile ultrasound unit workers, and a maternity home working together in partnership to help this young mother recognize the value of the life within her. And she chose to give birth. None of us would have been able to do what we did if we didn't have in the background those fighting the legal battle, the legislative battle, for our right to do that, for our right to even be on the street. So every aspect of people in the pro-life movement played a role in that child's birth. This story of partnership is one that is acted out every day in the St. Louis community. It truly does take a village. The Archbishop mentioned that um, I sit on the board of the National Returning Housing Coalition. It's actually the international um, coalition, but we haven't changed our name yet. Um, there are maternity homes in Italy, Italy, Ireland, Tanzania, um, South Africa, um, France, England. We get together annually to talk about best practices and to lift each other up. We help new groups of people who want to start maternity homes. We help them start them. Missouri is recognized across this country as a leader in the pro-life arena. Pro-life advocates look to emulate what we have been able here to do from both a legislative and a services perspective. Many of the leaders of pregnancy resource centers, maternity homes, adoption agencies, and healing ministries, along with other pro-life advocates, pray for the day when their diocese takes an active role in defending the unborn. We are so very fortunate to be blessed to be part of an archdiocese who took a leadership role from the very beginning. I'm always saddened and shocked to learn of a Catholic diocese in this country that did not. Each time I participate in a national meeting of pro-life leaders, there's always discussion of what's happening in Missouri. What is accomplished here cannot be attributed solely to the Catholic Church, however, as people of many faith traditions are active witnesses to the sanctity of life. However, I cannot count the number of times I have heard the Catholic Church being acknowledged for its leadership in the pro-life movement. Last year, I attended an international meeting of pro-life leaders in Florida. In front of a gathering of thousands, the pastor of an evangelical church had the stage. And he said, Catholics were the first to show up and they taught us how to defend life. As an aside, outside of St. Louis, Chicago, and New York, the majority of pregnancy help organizations 
are now run by evangelical Christians. So we're not alone in this work. For those seasoned enough to remember, I wonder if you knew where you were on January 22, 1973, when the Supreme Court decision enshrined into federal law the right to abortion. I don't remember where I was, unfortunately, but I should, as it was an event more impactful and far-reaching in its destructiveness than anything we have ever known. I do recall thinking, this has to be a mistake. This will be quickly overturned. I failed to comprehend what that decision really meant. But thankfully, men and women across the country did understand the ramifications of that decision and immediately stood up to defend the unborn. There are many in this room who we can count among that group. I'm here to thank them for their courage, their limitless faith, and their never-ending perseverance. This morning I stand, we stand, on the shoulders of those first responders, those who ushered the rallying cry for the pro-life movement as we know it. Because of their heroic efforts, abortion is no longer the law of the land. Because of their devotion to upholding the sanctity of life and the co-creative nature of motherhood, millions of children are alive and millions of women were rescued from the woundedness terminating a pregnancy would have brought upon them. From the start, these pro-life warriors taught us how to walk with moms in need, to offer spiritual and emotional support, to help lift financial burdens, offer shelter, and to share in their joy of new life. They taught us how to protect and love mothers and their children who had no one else to do that. And I just want to put in perspective the 50 years of struggle to get to the point of overturning Roe v. Wade. The Israelites walked in the desert only 40 years. <laughs> they finally got where they were going. So the persistence that this group of faithful men and women showed is, is amazing to me. And so here we are, a post-Roe nation with every reason to celebrate the demise of the horrific Supreme Court decision was long in coming, but we should take solace and have pride in that being accomplished. But our work is far from over and we all know it. In fact, we likely have more to do now than we did at the start. New legal battles, endless legislative maneuvering, and more hearts hardened by deceit to win over. And today, more than ever before, women need us to help them make the choice for life and then support them in that decision. The familial and societal pressures 
against giving birth and raising children have escalated to new heights. The pressure is pervasive and intrusive. Women have told me that it's like a voice in their head that they cannot get rid of. Each pregnant mother needing support faces challenges based upon her unique circumstances. She may be single, widowed, or married. She is almost always often alone in her desire to give birth and is unaware of the services that are there to help her. Life circumstances weigh heavily on her. She struggles financially. She may have lost her job or fear that when her pregnancy is discovered, she will. She may have other children or have plans for education or career that she is told will be delayed or never be realized. Her age factors in. She's very young and doubts her ability to parent. Or she is older and concerned about health risks. She may suffer from substance abuse or mental health disorders. She may be at risk of homelessness or currently without a safe living environment. She may have been a victim of abuse, assault, or human trafficking. She is very often unchurched, never having been exposed to any faith formation or having fallen away from the religious tradition of her youth. She has no religious community to support her. We need to protect her from the culture of death in which nothing is sacred. This cult of death uses deception, obfuscation, and lies and takes advantage of pain, insecurity, and despair as an opportunity to enter in and instill fear and false belief. One of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis, in his 1941 The Screwtape Letters, describes for us how, how the devil keeps humankind out of God's realm. Steer them away from reason. Jargon, not argument, is the best ally in keeping man from the church. Doesn't that sound familiar? The pro-abortion advocacy machine has excelled in the use of jargon to control the national narrative, using words such as choice rather than abortion, fetus, never baby, reproductive health care rather than the right to kill one's own. They don't use terms for mother, father, son, or daughter. Nothing that would insinuate parenthood. They count on us being unthinking and knowingly deceiving. They are knowingly deceiving, but they are the ones that are being deceived. They are firmly in the clutches of evil and we must pray for them. We must pray for them to be freed. We must pray for them to think. And in this, our best ally is our Blessed Mother. So as we pray for these people in the clutches of evil, 
Ask our Blessed Mother's intercession. We must inflict thought and reason upon them. We must take control of the narrative, all the while knowing that we will face vehement, even diabolic pushback when we do. We must continue to support families in choosing life, meeting pregnant and parenting mothers with love and free from judgment. We focus our efforts on pregnancy and the mother's spiritual well-being, and we must also address the challenges that I mentioned earlier. We must also address trauma and abuse and prepare her with life skills and guide her in parenting. Many, many of the women that we see were parented on, in a very dysfunctional family or were not parented at all. So they have no idea what it means to bond with a child, to raise a child. We must help her secure employment and safe, affordable housing when that's a need for her. We must accompany her on her journey long past birth. We must also support fathers. We need services to support men in their roles and responsibilities as fathers and husbands. We must continue to enact legislation focused at the state and local level without losing sight of the federal law. Legal maneuvering, as was mentioned earlier, is already um, in play. We must protect against the influx of do-it-yourself abortion drugs. 44% of the abortions in 2019 were chemical. The percentage now is even greater. These drugs can be bought online illegally and in some states will soon be sold over the counter. Fewer and fewer women will go to a clinic and the opportunity for a personal encounter is vanishing. The focus will have to be on new methods to get the message of pregnancy help to women and to men. And above everything else, it is imperative that we educate are succeeding generations in the gospel of life. Catechesis is the key to ending abortion. Until that day, we will pray unceasingly. We will place our faith in God's promise, our hope in the salvation brought to us by his son. We will not be discouraged for we know how the story ends. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you, Peggy, for uh, those inspirational words. That was fantastic. Um, we've got a small thank you gift for being here this morning with us. Thank you, so thank you much. very much. Really appreciate it.
we wouldn't want the Archbishop to show up this early without giving him a gift as well. So thank, thank you for being here. And could you give us our final blessing? Once again, our thanks to Peggy Forrest for not only the talk that she's given to us this morning, but also for the witness of her life, and particularly for all of those who collaborate with her uh, in Our Lady's Inn in helping those women who come to them to realize the importance of life and to walk with them so that their children can be brought into the world and can have a chance for life uh, as they are born. So Peggy, thank you for in your inspiring words. Tom, thank you for your leadership of Legatus, and thanks to all of you for being here this morning and for your witness in life and bringing the gospel message to fruition because you have allowed that word of faith to be implanted in you. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, our God, you have entrusted to us, through your Son, the gospel of life. You have given us life, your creation, so that we may share this message with others. Inspire us, Lord, as we go forth from here to be true messengers of life in our world. May our every encounter point toward you. May our every thought and our every prayer be directed to you. Lord, our God, as we continue our celebration of your son's resurrection in this Easter season, may we always know that his rising over sin and death gives us victory in life each and every day. May your blessing be upon us as we go forth from here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be with you this morning and to share in this Legatus Prayer Breakfast. God bless you. Thank you. <laughs>